We are in a, in a series right now called The Miracle of Christmas, and what we're doing is we're looking at some of the events surrounding that first Christmas morning in order for us to, to really grasp how miraculous Christmas really is. And, and there's a lot of things that go into that. Last week we started by looking at the miracle of the moment, and what that means is, is that the birth of Christ, the birth of our Savior, isn't by chance. It was ordained by God, and it came at the very perfect time. And not only did he come at the perfect time, but he provided for us exactly what we needed at the perfect time, which is a Savior. Okay, and so that's what we looked at last week. This week, uh, we're going to look at what's called the miracle in the manger. And, and one of the most popular movies uh, around this time of year, at least for, for a long time, has been a very popular movie, is the old classic, The Miracle on 34th Street. Now, I, last night I was watching TV, and it's almost Christmas, so you know there's Christmas movies on. Uh, and, and I came across this movie, who I'd already put in my sermon for this morning, I caught myself watching it. Uh, all over again. Now, if you've never seen the original Miracle on the 34th Street, I, I would encourage you to do so. Did you know it celebrates its 70th year this year? It is 70 years old this year. It came out in 1947. Well, if you haven't seen it, the basic plot of this movie is there's a man who shows up in New York City, and he ends up in a department store, and they hire him to portray uh, the Santa Claus, to be their store's Santa Claus. However, he not only portrays Santa Claus, he claims to be the real Santa Claus. And the movie revolves around him trying to convince people that he is Santa Claus and, and then people trying to convince him and others that he is not Santa Claus. As a matter of fact, it makes its way all the way to court because at court they're trying to actually send him to a, a, a psychiatric hospital. You know, you're crazy. You can't be the real Santa Claus. And if you're going to walk around telling everybody that you are, then, then you don't need to be out on the street kind of deal. And it ends all the way up in court in New York City. And, and the judge, he's caught in a, between a rock and a hard place. I mean, what do you do? You send this guy who claims to be Santa, you send him to a mental hospital. Well, that's not going to look good uh, around. But if you don't, then it doesn't look good. So he didn't know what to do. And eventually, at the end of the movie, he decides to side with the United States Postal Service because they caught wind of what was going on. And every year, as your kids probably did, my kids, some of you youth, you may still do it. I don't know. But you write letters to Santa Claus and you send them. Well, the post office gets those, and, and they had them, and they didn't know. They just had one word, Santa Claus, no address. And at the end of the movie, the Postal Service decides to deliver all of the Santa Claus letters in New York City to this guy that's on trial, and they find him. They didn't want to disagree with the Postal Service, so they end up proclaiming him to be the real Santa Claus. Now, the idea of meeting not just a department store Santa Claus, uh, but the real Santa Claus would represent, you know, a dream come true for a lot of people, especially for kids. And I recognize that we live in a very skeptical society of things, and, and we've come by that rightfully. We have watched people 
uh, take advantage of things, and we've seen people claim one thing and be something else, so it has caused us to be very skeptical when people tell us things. We don't want to just take their word for it, and so we, we live in a very uh, skeptical society, yet there's something about this story that has continued to draw people in for 70 years. Like I said, last night, I was watching it again, and, I, and, and it was drawing me into this idea that maybe this guy is. What if the, he is the real Santa Claus? And it invites us to reconsider some things that we perhaps thought were settled a long time ago in our late childhood. And as the story unfolds, there springs forth this childish hope that perhaps Kris Kringle really is Santa Claus. And it begins to open up some incredible and amazing questions like, could he really be Santa Claus? What if he really is Santa Claus? And if he is, how sad and tragic for him to be thought of as a fraud and for those that don't believe in him to miss out on the richness of knowing him for who he is. You see, I think of today some of those same questions are asked during this time of year about the one who was found in the manger over 2,000 years ago. Who is this person, this child in a manger? Who was he really? What if he is who they say he is? And how tragic it is if he is who he says he is and who they says he is for those of us who reject him during this time. And so this morning, as we continue in the miracle of Christmas series, I just want us to look this morning at the miracle that was actually in the manger. And the question to be answered today is one of the same questions that's asked in the movie Miracle on 34th Street, and that is a question of identity. Who is this child that is in the manger. And so to answer that this morning, we're going to read from a couple different texts in Luke chapter 1 and also in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. The Word of God says in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, we're going to read through verse 33, says this, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now flip over to John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, and now as we examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase and that the words would be shared today would be your words and not mine. And Father, that you would speak to us the things that we need to hear, the things that we need to understand this morning, and that we would respond how you lead us to respond in obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in Luke chapter 1 and in John chapter 1, uh, there's these verses that they, they describe for us in beautiful words and pictures th this miracle that was in the manger. And I want us to see three truths this morning that they teach us about the miracle that was in the manger. Number one, the miracle in the manger makes astonishing claims. There were astonishing claims made about him. Now, whenever a child is born, parents uh, and family tend to make astonishing claims about their child, right? You have a child and, and oh, this, this daughter of mine is going to be the next so-and-so, or this son of mine is going to be the next so-and-so, and, and you make these astonishing claims, or how about this one? My, my daughter or my son was the most beautiful baby that's ever been born. I, that, that's a very astonishing claim because I don't know how many babies have been born since the start of the earth, but that's a lot, okay? And by the way, yours can't be it because mine are, so I'm just telling you, okay? So we, we make astonishing claims about our children when they're Born, but of all the astonishing claims that have ever been made about a newborn child, none are as astonishing as the claims made about this baby that is lying in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. I mean, consider the claims about this baby that was born into the humblest of circumstances by an ordinary young girl named Mary in the tiny town of Bethlehem. In the text that I read, uh, the, these are some of the, the uh, claims that we find about this baby laying in a manger. Number one, we find the idea that he was sent by God. He was sent by God. Number two, we find that the Word of God says he is the Son of God. Son of God. Number three, he is the Savior of the entire world. The Savior of the world. He is also mentioned as the Christ which in literal terms means the anointed chosen one. The anointed one, the chosen one. In the book of John, we find that he is called the word of God, the literal word of God. He is the light of the world. He is God with us, which means Emmanuel, or Emmanuel, which means God with us. And last week, we looked at one of the blessings that we have in our Redeemer is that he brought us adoption. We looked at that last week. When you read John chapter 1, we find out that he is the adoption giver or grantor. 
He is the one that grants us the ability to be adopted by the Father in heaven. I mean, when you look at those, and there are others, but when you look at these claims, these are some very astonishing claims, and they don't stop at the birth of Christ. The, the claims about who Christ is, about who this baby was, lying in a manger in Bethlehem, don't stop in the events surrounding the birth of Christ. You'll find more astonishing claims about him within two years of his birth when the wise men show up. By the way, the wise men were not at the birth of Christ. So when you see a nativity scene and the wise men are there, that's not accurate, okay? They were not at the birth of Christ. They were there between six months and two years later, and we don't know how many of them there were, but we know of three gifts, so we get three wise men. That's what people say, okay? But we don't know that for sure. But they make astonishing claims, because they even, when they show up to Herod and ask, who, where is this child that's been born? They, want, they know who he is. He, they know who he's going to, and they make these claims. And not only do they stop, they don't stop there either. We, we don't have much between that, but, you know, then we see some claims made about him by himself when he becomes an adult and starts his ministry on this earth. Jesus himself claimed to be the bread of heaven. He claimed to be the living water. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed the authority to forgive sins. He claimed the authority to offer freely to us grace and mercy. He claimed to be the only one who could offer the hope of escaping God's judgment. He claimed to be the only one, the only path to eternal life, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed that he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He claimed to, be, to have the power to raise up from the dead and the power to return and receive his children to himself. There are, from the birth of Christ all the way through the life of Christ, through the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and then even after his ascension of Christ, there have been nothing but astonishing claims made about this miracle that we find in the manger. But see, those miracle in the manger, they don't just make astonishing claims. These astonishing claims lead us to some staggering implications, and that's our second point for this morning. What do you make about such astonishing claims as this, that he is the, the Son of God, the sent by God, the Word of God, the anointed one, the Savior of the world, the, the light of life, the, the bread of heaven, the living water? What do you make of these astonishing claims? So I want you to know there are some staggering implications for that. You see, some, some people today, and over the course of the last 2,000 years, have just simply ignored these claims. They treat them as it's nothing. We don't think about them. We don't care. We just ignore it. Some are respectful of, of the claims, but don't take them serious. Others even show great admiration for these claims, like other religions like Islam and Hinduism, who both have great admiration for Christ, but don't take them to the point that Christ himself did. Others hear about them and admire Jesus. He's a good teacher, or he was a, a great man, or whatever. And they admire Jesus from a distance. But when it comes right down to it, for a lot of people today, 
Jesus is nothing more than just a nice man in a beard. That's all he is. He's just a nice man with a beard. But here's the problem with these reactions. The claims of who? Of Christ. The claims that were made about the baby in the manger and the claims that Jesus himself made about himself and the claims the disciples and the apostles made about Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection, these claims leave no room for those positions. You see, these claims that they, he either is who he claimed to be, the Lord, the Son of God, with the power to save and forgive, he either is that, or he and those talking about him are lunatics and liars. That's it. You see, the claims made about him, they don't leave us the option of just admiring this Jesus and respecting him as a good person, a good teacher, a prophet, if you will. Uh, they don't leave room for us just to look and leave him at that. They leave no room for those positions. He either is who he claimed to be, the Lord, the Son of God, the Savior, and the light of the world, or he is a lunatic and or a liar. There is no middle ground. Because if he is who they and he says he is, there are some staggering implications to that. What if there is someone who was sent by God? What if there is someone who is God with us? What if there is someone who came and is the anointed Savior of the world with the power to forgive sins, with the power to give grace and mercy, with, with the power to grant us adoption as God's children, powerful to save us, powerful to return from the dead, and powerful to return back to receive us to himself? If, there, if this child in the manger really is the miracle in the manger, then you and I, I have a decision we have to make. And that's the last thing we're going to talk about this morning. And that is, because of who he is, because of the miracle in the manger, because of the claims that are made, and because the implications of the claims leave no room, you either accept him for who he is or you reject him, and they leave no room, then you and I have to make a fateful choice. You see, if these astonishing claims are true, if they're true, then you and I have a decision to make, a decision that is a matter of earthly and eternal significance. Look in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 5. John, chapter 1, verse 5. The Bible says, And the light, talking about Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now look down in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You see, there's a choice that has to be made. We either accept the claims of Jesus to be who the people talking about him say he is, 
who Jesus himself says he is and who his disciples and followers have said he is and who the church has says he is for over 2,000 years, we either accept him as Lord of all or we reject him. There is no middle ground. And that is a fateful choice. It's a choice that affects our eternal destiny. You see, if you and I, if we just think of Jesus and, and we think and we think about all these claims and we, we listen to them, and we, and we may not necessarily even be against them, we think they're pretty, uh, pretty neat, pretty good, pretty, pretty nice claims made about this Savior, but we don't, we don't follow him with our lives, and, and we don't do what the Bible tells us we have to do in order to become his child. He says he gives us the right to become child of God. How to those who believe in him? If we never choose to actually believe in him, that's not head knowledge, guys. That, that knowledge is a heart knowledge. That is a relationship with him to believe, to trust, to have faith that he is exactly who the word of God and who the, the people surrounding his birth and the, the Jesus himself, that he is exactly who he says he is, that we have faith, that we trust, that he is the son of God with the power to save you and I. And if we do that and we trust that and we place our faith in that, then that affects our eternal destiny. Well, how do I know that? Because the Bible tells us that if we trust in him, if we put our faith and our trust in him, that, that our eternal destiny goes from death to life. It is a life-changing, eternal-changing, death-changing decision. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of Jesus hanging on the cross between two thieves or two criminals. And if you know the story much at all, you know that there was one, one thief who's kind of mocking him for who he is and who's like, if you really are who you say you are, then take yourself down, you know, and, and, and do all this. And, and the other one looks at the, at the other thief and says, you need to be quiet. This man, we deserve what we're getting. This man has deserved nothing. And this is happening to him. And then he looks at him and he says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus tells him, today I tell you surely that you will be with me in paradise. Do you realize that upon the cross of Calvary that there was a man whose death changed in a matter of moments? You see, death was imminent to those all three of them that were on the cross. You know what? This morning, death is imminent to all of us as well. But right before, right before his death, one was still mocking Christ, and his death didn't change. And then there was one who received Christ, and his death changed in a matter of moments. Why? Because he believed. He believed, and it changed his eternal destiny. And if you're here today, and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, there's never been a time where you've taken these claims made about Christ at Christmas that were made about him through his life and his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection, and for the last 2,000 years through the witness of the church. If that's never been a time where you've received those personally, and you've placed your faith in him to be exactly who he says he is, then this morning you have an op you're going to have an opportunity to do that. And if you do, it will change your eternal destiny. But not only is it a fateful choice that changes our eternal destiny from one of suffering to one of eternal life. It will, if you choose to follow him, if he is who he says he is, we not only have to make a choice that's going to affect our eternity, and we have to make a choice that's going to affect our 
earthly time. Because here's the reality. It's not possible to accept him for who he is, for who he says he is, and it not change the way we live. There is no way that you can accept the claims, the astonishing claims about this baby in a manger. You can't accept those claims and it not change your earthly destiny. You see, before Christ, before we, we accept these claims, we are walking our own path, we're doing our own thing, we're living our own life, we're living completely for ourselves, we're doing whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, and we like it that way. But when you come face to face with the fact that there really is a Son of God who has the power to save you from your sin and who's come and, and, and lived a perfect life and, and died a death on a cross of Calvary and shed his own blood so so that you and I can have a relationship with God the Father if we would place our faith and our trust in Him and what He's done. There's no way you can receive that and it not change the way you live your life. One of the big problems that we have in the church today is we have people that want to come to faith in Christ, but they want to continue to live in the world. But the Bible says that when you become a child of God, when you are granted the right to become a child of God, a right that is only granted through faith in Christ, you are a new creation. And the old has passed away, and all things have been made new in your life. And if you look at your life, and your life is no different today than it was the day that you got, quote, saved, you need to ask yourself, did I really, did I really accept Christ for who he is? Or is it just a good thought that he is who he says he is? You see, there are a lot of people out there today and a lot of kids that they'd be really excited to find out that Santa Claus is real, that this Chris Kringle that was in this movie, he's the real Santa Claus. They, they'd be excited and it, it would change everything. There would be adults. Wouldn't it change your life this morning, honestly, if it came very, very clear that Santa Claus was real to you this morning? Wouldn't it change everything? Well, Jesus is real. He is real. Without a doubt, he's real. Has it changed your life? Because when you look at these claims... There's staggering implications to that. He either is who he says he is, or he's a lunatic or a liar. And if he is who he says he is, then you and I have a choice to make with what we do with him. We either receive him or we reject him. When we receive him, it changes our eternal destiny. But it also changes our earthly journey. If we reject him then our eternal destiny is not changed. And our earthly journey is still where we want to go, when we want to go, doing whatever we want to do, with no hope, with no help, and with no Savior. Listen to how Jesus said it to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Because the truth of the matter is, all of us must consider what we're going to do with this miracle in the manger, and no one can decide for you. 
You have to choose for yourself what you're going to do with him. And listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 16. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered unto him and said, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Who is this miracle in the manger to you? Is he your Savior? Is he the Messiah, the Son of a living God? Or is he just a nice baby that grew up to be a nice man with a beard?